In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. The first question is, what is a spiritual canon exactly, and why does it matter to have one? So the word canon is a general word, and actually it's a Greek word that means measuring rod. That's the, the root of where it comes from. It's a Greek word, means measuring rod. So what does that have to do with this? So a canon is like a guide or a rule, like something like imagine like a ruler, like something you measure against, right? And so the word canon is used in the church um, in a lot of different ways. Um, we speak about the biblical canon, right? The biblical canon is essentially the books that the church has decided and accepted as being inspired by the Holy Spirit to be used in the Bible, which, which is the Bible, right? So we call it the biblical canon because it's, it's the rule of which books are in the Bible, which books are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Also, the church has different rules that are called canons. <clears throat> canons. The canons are rules that are put in place by different councils, uh, like uh, like synods. So, for instance, when the group of bishops in the Coptic Church uh, meet, we call it the Holy Synod, um, they can come up with canons, right? And these canons are rules that are applying to the church as a whole. All throughout history, the church has had many different councils, and there have been many, many different canons that came out of uh, the church that, that manage all kinds of different things and, and, and uh, rules that, that, like, regulate and manage the church, people in the church, um, things that the people should follow, and so on. So in this case, when we speak about a spiritual canon, um, it is also a rule, okay, and it is a rule of spiritual activity, right, that each person should follow, um, that we would practice with guidance from our Father of Confession. A spiritual canon is something that is unique to each person, okay? Um, it involves things like how, when we should pray, how often we should pray, how should we fast, how often we should fast, uh, what should we read, uh, regulating our, our Bible reading, other spiritual book reading, um, perhaps keeping a spiritual notebook to record our like spiritual activities and so on, right? There's really no uh, limit to what can be in a, in a spiritual canon. It's really up to the Father of Confession to decide um, with agreement from each person of what their spiritual canon will be. Okay, um, and that's important because each person is at a different spiritual level. Even though the church has uh, like a standard uh, guidelines, right? But those guidelines can be tweaked and modified um, either to remove something from it or to add something to it uh, for each individual, right? So the church places like uh, a general guideline that, you know, is applicable to to you know, most people, we can say, uh, but each person has a different level. So for instance, a person who has just recently been baptized and joined the church is not necessarily going to be able to follow the full uh, canon, right, that is kind of the general canon of the church. Whereas maybe a person who has been in the church for decades, right, um, and is at a, a level where they can actually go beyond uh, what the general canon is for the church. Let's say with regards to fasting, for instance, like there are some people who choose to fast more days than the general standard of the church, or some people that choose to fast um, with abstinence for a longer period of time than other people in the morning, right? There are some people that will read 
in the Bible more than others, right? So all of those variations, those things that distinguish the spiritual practice from one person to the other, we, we call this the, the spiritual canon, right? What is the spiritual canon of a specific person? So why is it important to have a spiritual canon? Okay, it's important because um, just as, say, we have uh, physical activities that we do um, on a regular basis, like, for instance, we eat, right? We drink, we exercise, we, you know, do different things, that there is a regiment that if I follow it is going to result in, say, good health, right? Whereas if I don't follow it, maybe I won't have good health. Um, and there could be a person who is like a trainer or someone who's, you know, expert in nutrition or, or otherwise, who would be the one to follow with each person and decide what would be good for their physical health, right? In the same way, the church has the spiritual canon where the father of confession is essentially the trainer, okay, which decides for us what is good for our spiritual health. And the canon is important because if we don't have some kind of fixed rule, then we end up day by day kind of deciding for ourselves what we want to do. And it oftentimes is just based on how we feel at the time. Like if I feel like I have a lot of energy, if I have a lot of time, then I might pray or I might pray more or, 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 or if I you know, feel like fasting is something on my heart that I want to do, I might choose to fast and otherwise I don't fast. Um, and we might find that um, because we tend to tend toward maybe being more lazy or you know, when we're tired, we don't think uh, that the thing we want to do necessarily is pray. Our spiritual activities can be um, neglected unless we have something to kind of help us focus, maintain focus on what we should be doing day by day, okay? So, so, so that we avoid skipping prayers, we avoid skipping readings, especially like when we're not feeling too well. Um, <clears throat> just like, for instance, when uh, we focus on our work, you know, we go to work for eight, nine, 10 hours a day or, or whatever it is, and we do that consistently, whether we like to go or not, whether we're tired or not, because we have to go to work, right? Um, and there is uh, same thing with like studying for school. Now, when with those things, there's a physical consequence and an immediate consequence that can happen when I fall short of, of those rules, right? So, you know, if I decide on my own that, you know, I'm tired today, I don't want to go to work, very quickly, I can get fired, right? Very quickly, I will feel the pain of that wrong decision because I will lose my job, I will lose money, I, you know, or if I'm in school and I decide I'm tired, I don't want to study, very quickly, I will get a bad grade, very quickly, I can fail a class and so on. So the... The, the consequences of poor decisions when it comes to those things is very immediate and noticeable, right? And so um, the idea of, of maintaining certain rule of, of behavior, like when it comes to work or school, is clearly important because we know that the consequences are immediate and the consequences are extreme, right? When it comes to the spiritual life, though, um, the consequences of not fasting, or the consequences of not praying, the consequences of not reading the Bible, is not going to be um, uh, an immediate uh, consequence. So if we skip reading, you know, for a day, we skip, you know, praying for a day, the next day is not going to, it's not like anything really is going to have feel any different, right? Um, nothing drastic or dramatic is going to happen from one day, right? Um, compare that to, for instance, if we don't eat for a day, right, then you might be starving the next day, or you might feel dizzy or unhealthy, right, the next day. 
So the nature of the spiritual work, right, and the spiritual exercises is it, like it's even more important that we maintain a rule because our bodies are not going to immediately warn us or tell us that there is something wrong, right? And this is has to do with our sinful state, our corrupted state, right? Uh, when it comes to the flesh, our bodies tell us immediately that there's something wrong. Like, hey, you're hungry, you're thirsty, you have to eat, you have to drink, you have to breathe, right? Because if, if something is wrong in our bodies, <clears throat> if there's something that our bodies lack, immediately our bodies has the, all these warning signs that communicate to us that we have to take an action, right? Um, but when it comes to spiritual activities, right, um, it, it's not necessarily the case, you know? Part of our the disease of sin and corruption that we have is that we don't experience that spiritual hunger as we should, right? That even though I might be neglecting my spiritual practices, I don't feel that spiritual hunger as I should feel it, right? So there isn't so much a natural mechanism inside myself that tells me, okay, now is the time to pray. Now is the time to read. Now is the time to fast. Now is the time to do confess, right? It's not as natural. I have to push myself to do these things, to remind myself to do them. Yes, they can become habits for sure. And we should develop these habits, but it's not necessarily something that is as primal as the, the physical warnings whenever I neglect my physical activities that I should be doing. Okay, so this is why it's important to have a rule and that we follow this rule and not rely on how we feel in the moment, okay, in terms of our spiritual activities. So these canons, okay, they help us to continue to progress spiritually in our spiritual life without compromise. Because what will help us to grow, you know, like, like yes, you know, we are baptized, um, we are Christians, we are believers, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, but but what are we called for in our life, right? How, how are we called to live? We are called to live in this process of sanctification, which means that we are called to become more Christ-like in our life. This is, this is our calling in our life, to draw closer to God, right? To become more like him, to enjoy his presence more, to, to realize the fullness of the gifts that he has given us and his presence with us. This is our goal here in this life, right? So, so the, the spiritual canon and the spiritual activities are to help us fulfill and realize those goals, right? To experience God more, to, to be filled with his peace, to be filled with joy, to be filled with comfort, to see him before us, to have the joy of heaven, even though we are on earth, okay? So we, we shouldn't expect that we can jump to, to that place or like we see maybe in the lives of the saints, how they had such an immediate and, and clear experience of the presence of God with them all the time. We shouldn't expect that that can just happen, right? Without us putting any kind of effort. Of course, this is the grace of God who grants us this, but God is going to um, work with us, right? When we, when, when we are working, he also is working. Okay. So, um, it's important for us to have this plan so that we can grow in our spiritual life over time, okay? And also, the canon is also beneficial because, and I think we, we talked about this before, is that sometimes in our momentary zeal, right, we might try to take on more than we're able, you know? 
I feel very, very zealous. I'm going to fast for three days without eating food. I feel very zealous. I'm going to pray for three hours a day, right? And maybe we're not at that stage. We're not at that level. And we burn ourselves out because we try to do too much too fast and we can't sustain it and we give up. We like, you know, there's like an abrupt collapse of everything um, because we're trying to take on more than we can. And while at the beginning it felt like we could do it and, and it was exciting, um, after some time it just feels too difficult, right? So again, the ultimate purpose of these activities is to connect us with God and we do so by setting this canon. And so how do we do it? Well, we speak to our Father Confession and he will talk with us and walk us through um, these different things and set a certain plan, okay? And it's important to follow the plan, not to do less and not to do more, right? And then over time, as we progress, then he can give us more and more and more. But it's important to have this discussion with your father confession so that we have kind of a, a standard that we follow um, day by day in our spiritual life. <clears throat> uh, number two. When should a parent question whether the weakness that they see in their child is a reflection of their own weakness, and when should they not? Um, this is one of uh, maybe the greatest fears of a parent, uh, is the feeling that uh, we are not doing a good job and that maybe our weaknesses, whether the weakness be a weakness in our own character or a weakness in our parenting skills, uh, the ability <clears throat> to teach and to demonstrate what is right to our children is responsible for their own poor choices and their own failures, right? This is, for parents, this is one of the greatest fears and that we're always worried about our influence on them and making sure that we are giving them everything that they need for success. Um, and so because parents are so tuned into this and so mindful of this, when we do see our kids making wrong choices, um, it's very easy to blame ourselves. It's very easy to ask the question, what did we do wrong? Should we have done something differently? Um, if only I had done this and this and this, um, and we can feel guilt, uh, right, about it. So um, the question here is, when does it make sense um, for us to identify that we are the cause of the problem? And when, when do we say, no, it's, it's not my fault, it's their fault, okay? Definitely it is possible that the weaknesses of my children um, could be attributed at least partially to my own problems, my own weakness, my own wrong example, my wrong teaching, my neglect, my abuse. Um, all of those things could uh, potentially be a factor um, in the the wrong choices of my children okay and there could be more than one reason that we ask this question okay there could be more than one reason why we think as parents is this my fault or not okay one productive reason um one good reason to ask this question is because we want to learn from our mistakes right like if i feel like um maybe my child has picked up a, a bad habit um, and I, I believe that that's because of my a parenting problem from my, 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 my side. And then when I ask that question, it can help me to improve, right? Like, um, especially when we discover these things when our children are still young, when, you know, I'll give you an example, like, let's say a parent, um, curses and, uh, 
at one point we hear our child curse, the same word maybe that I'm used to saying. And then suddenly it clicks in my mind, okay, the reason that my child is saying that is because they hear me saying it. And, and so I need to change so that I can correct this, right? That's an example of a positive uh, kind of way of looking at it and saying, well, this is, this is something that I can influence, something that I've done wrong and I can fix it and it can, I can improve on my child. Or maybe if I have a, a very bad temper, right? And I get angry easily and that causes my child to act out in certain ways or causes my child to be afraid or causes my child to also get really angry and yell when they, when they see that I'm yelling all the time. It's another example of me identifying um, something in my child uh, behavior that I can link to my own behavior and then I can change it. I can say, no, I'm doing something wrong. I need to fix it, right? That's a positive approach to, 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 to just identifying some things that I can improve in myself that would have a positive impact on my child, okay? But oftentimes, um, instead of it being more toward like a positive uh, focus, a lot of times parents just blame themselves, right? And just feel bad in general because they are responsible for the weaknesses of their kids. And oftentimes when you really can't identify um, any specific behavior or action that the parents have done to, to result in the weakness of their kids, right? Like certainly there are destructive behaviors that have a negative impact on our kids, you know, like smoking, drinking, cursing, lying, abuse of all kinds, right? All these things can have a detrimental impact on our kids, okay? Um, it can hurt them emotionally, psychologically, physically, right? Uh, teaching them wrong principles, right? That can also, but um, at any point in time, you know, uh, whether we have been the cause or partially the cause of any of these things, a lot of times it's not helpful to just dwell in the past, um, in which case we're just gonna feel guilt and, 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 and upset about what happened. Instead, our focus can be more on what can I do today to help to improve the situation? Whether that is because I am partially to blame for the behavior, or even if I am not um, to blame for the behavior, but I'm still thinking about what as a parent can I do to help my kids uh, moving forward, right? Because we also have to acknowledge that our children have free and they have their own weaknesses and actually from birth, right? Like, you know, any parent who has more than one kid can easily see as just a natural tendency that some kids are, you know, have weaknesses in certain areas and other kids have weaknesses in different areas, right? Not, not because of anything we have done, almost they're like born, you know, with certain tendencies, certain personalities. So as parents, we are not responsible for every mistake and every weaknesses of our kids, right? Especially if we have more than one child, we can see very clearly, right, that they're different. And also like, let's say I have a, I'm the same parent, okay, but I'm parenting two different kids. One kid turns out to be, you know, loves the church, goes to church all the time, you know, loves to do spiritual things, loves to read the Bible, so on. And another child is like the opposite of that. Doesn't like to go to church at all, is very rebellious and so on. Well, I mean, they are, I am the parent of both of them. So yes, it's possible that I, maybe I treated one differently than the other, um, but also you can ask the question like, well, if I had a similar parenting strategy for both of these kids, then why is it that one turned out so different than the other? Well, again, we can't discount the fact that each child has their own personality, has their own, you know, strengths and weaknesses. And, 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 and so 
we can't just conclude because you know maybe one child um, is going in a direction that we don't want them to go that somehow it is because of us as parents some you know definitely none of us are, are perfect parents and all obviously we can all do better but it's not beneficial for us to place all the blame on ourselves when you know when we see our, our child going in the wrong direction you know one one kind of thought that came to my mind was the parable of the prodigal son you know in this parable the the older son and the younger son have a similar problem which is their sense of entitlement right the younger son because of his sense of entitlement he demanded from his father that he receive his inheritance before his father even died and then he went and squandered it all okay the older son we discover toward the end of the parable that even when the younger son has like come to himself and returned that now the older son is bitter because the father is spending his resources and having a party for the younger son rejoicing that he returned and now the older son is saying well you never did this to me you never gave me anything you know even though obviously he received so much from his father living in his father's house um so so both of them have a similar problem all right both of them kind of have this spirit of entitlement but we don't read anywhere in the parable that somehow this is the fault of the father right or that the father is beating himself up because you know his his younger son left the house and you know wasted all, everything and that his older son is also you know acting in this unloving way we don't we don't see any blame placed on the father for for what happened right the focus is on each individual being responsible for their own behavior okay um so self-blame and and immediately looking to ourselves as being like the root cause of the problem is oftentimes not helpful okay because all we can do in the moment is just say okay we this is where we are how do we improve now definitely as we are disciplining our children um, and teaching them what is right we definitely have to apply that to ourselves like we can't we can't say I'm teaching a positive principle to my kids, but then I am I am not practicing it. That is definitely wrong. That is definitely something that is going to be felt by the children that they are not going to benefit because they're going to see me as being hypocritical because I'm not even making an attempt to do what it is that I'm asking them to do. Right. So so if if I'm telling them to live a certain way, then I also need to try to live that way and to do my best right to live that way so we can always examine ourselves we can repent of our mistakes but our energy should be primarily focused on helping our kids in the present not trying to change the past or live in the past or wallow in sorrow about the past because those things are done that they're not going to be changed nothing can change them right and we have to acknowledge that as parents we have deficiencies we ask god for his mercy, we ask him for forgiveness, we ask him to cover us, we ask him to help raise our kids, we ask him, you know, to give our kids all that they need, right? And even though we are weak, we believe and we trust and we ask God to still use us as vessels for providing something good to our kids, right? We as adults are called to take responsibility of our own actions, also without looking to our parents and saying, well, this is because my parents did this and this. No, I mean, whether whether our parents contributed to some kind of maybe bad behavior or or something that's in me, I can't point at anyone but myself, right? Each of us are um, each of us are are, are are facing life and are dealing with life, and 
whether it be the positive things or the negative things, the circumstances that we have. And each of us is called to live righteously with the situation that we have. For some, it's more difficult than others. For some, other people have played a bigger role in making my circumstances more difficult, right? But with the power of God, all things are possible. God can heal wounds, right? God can correct, God can transform, God can change, right? And so as parents, we try our best to teach our children what is right, to correct our mistakes when we discover them, to, to see what is the most effective way of moving forward with our kids instead of just um, regretting and blaming ourselves um, is not is usually it's not the best it's not the best approach. Number three, how do you define maturity and how can I measure if I'm a mature person? Also, I heard the term spiritual maturity, emotional maturity and intellectual maturity. What does each of these mean and how can we get to it? Okay, so uh, maturity, right? The definition of mature is to be fully developed, having reached an advanced stage of mental or emotional development, right? So it's, it's being fully developed and having an advanced stage of development, okay? So um, maturity, the word maturity can apply to many things, right? So you can have emotional maturity, right? Someone who is emotionally immature reacts like a child, right? Not like an adult, but like a child, right? A person who is emotionally immature maybe is moved emotionally in extreme ways, whether it be positive or negative, right? Maybe they get too depressed when something negative happens. They take it too much to heart. They react in an extremely negative way. Um, and maybe when something positive happens, they also react in, in, a, in, a, uh, in an unreasonably euphoric way, right? That doesn't really fit the situation that's happened, right? Uh, a person who's emotionally immature cannot control their actions when they experience strong emotions, right? If I experience a, a strong uh, negative emotion, I feel compelled to act it out, maybe to get angry, to yell, to throw things, you know? To, to, to cry, you know, in, in an uncontrolled way. Um, and then also when I feel a positive emotion, maybe also my reaction to that is just, um, it's like too, it's, it's like extreme. Like I'm getting too, too emotionally happy. Like maybe, um, maybe I'm, the thing that happened uh, is not really, you know, as, as good as, as I'm expressing. And, and it's going to cause me disappointment, right? Because I'm, I'm like taking it as being it's too, um, like it's, as though it's better than what it actually is, okay? Um, an intellectually immature person, right? Maybe from an intellectual standpoint, still does not have the ability to learn or understand or discern things, uh, information, processing, understanding it, right? Like a child, like a child doesn't understand things that an adult would understand. A physically immature person is not yet physically developed as an adult, right? So what, what about spiritual immaturity, okay? So one thing to, under, to realize is that we are all spiritually mature in some, some degrees, right? Because there's always room to grow, right? There's always room to improve um, and we never stop learning and growing spiritually, okay? But there are some characteristics that I would say are, uh, you know, characteristic of spiritual uh uh, maturity, right, that we can discuss briefly, okay? What are some characteristics of someone who is spiritually mature? 
Can I say someone who is spiritually mature is someone who is not shaken in their faith by the circumstances of their life, right? Someone who's spiritually mature um, can can take a lot um, and accept a lot of things that are happening around them and their circumstances without losing their faith, without blaming God, without seeing that that these circumstances uh, necessarily mean to them that God doesn't exist or that God, um, you, you know, has abandoned them, right? But instead they see it in the scriptural sense that God is allowing trials in their life for one reason or the other, and that they should be patient and hold out in faith um, in God in the midst of these circumstances, right? I would say that is a important characteristic of someone who is spiritually mature. Another characteristic is they don't attribute evil to God, right? They never, they never see God as being evil. They never see God as being their enemy. They never see God as against them, right? Or, 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 or hating them or doing anything against them at all, right? They see God as, yes, allowing adversity, right? But just as we see in the life of St. Paul, um, the, the thorn in his side that God told him that he would not remove, there was a reason why. Right? He wanted St. Paul to experience humility and not be puffed up with all of the things that he was given. So God allowed this, right? So this was not evil that God did not want to heal St. Paul, even though he asked him, but it was God's goodness, right? Um, another uh, characteristic is trusting the will of God more than our own will, right? Is believing that God understands and knows better than we understand and know. Right, his ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So, for that reason, right, we surrender our will to him. Okay, another ex another characteristic of spiritual maturity. Um, a spiritually mature person is consistent in their spiritual practices. Right, they attend liturgy on a regular basis. They pray on a regular basis. They read on a regular basis. They confess on a regular basis. There is stability in their life. They have stability in their spiritual practices. They're not one day, you know, going to one extreme of, you know, like we said before when we were speaking about the spiritual canons, like one extreme, they go very, very much like I'm going to read the Bible all day. And then the next, they don't read the Bible. They don't go to church. They don't do anything. They don't pray to God at all. And they're angry toward God, right, the next day. And then fluctuating from one to the other, one to the other over, over their course of their life. No, the person who is spiritually mature um, is consistent and stable in their uh, practices and in their faith, okay? Um, a, a spiritually mature person is, uh, has realistic self-knowledge, right? A person who is spiritually mature knows themselves. They know their strengths. They know the things that God has given them, as, and they thank God for those things. And they also know their limitations, their weaknesses, their sins. And they also ask God for forgiveness in those things. When we know ourselves, we have a sober understanding of who we are. And it's and we, we can live in humility more realistically. A person who doesn't know their weaknesses cannot live in a, in a humble way. And they also cannot see other people realistically either. Right? When I, when I don't know myself, I also can't know others. So it's only when I get an insight into humanity, right, in myself, that then I can be, have an understanding of humanity and others and other people, right? This is what keeps me from 
not from judging others and allows me to have mercy on others, right? Because I know my own need for mercy because I know my weakness. So because I, 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 I comprehend and I understand my own need for mercy, then I'm able to show mercy um, on other people, okay? Another characteristic of someone who is uh, spiritually mature uh, is someone who admits wrongdoing, okay? Whenever they, they do make a mistake or when they sin, they admit it and they are able to confess it, right? They are able to go and confess their sin, admit their wrong, not trying to prove that they are without flaw, without flaw um, but they acknowledge that they do have flaws and they acknowledge they do make mistakes and they, they apologize, they can admit they're wrong, they can confess their sins and so on. This is a characteristic of a, of a spiritually mature person. Um, also, a spiritually mature person has a good understanding of the word of God and knows how to apply it. Okay, and this is important, knows how to apply it person who reads the word of God, listens to sermons, meditates on God's word, desires to live according to God's word, knows how to apply it in the right context, right? Because in some areas, it makes sense to apply a certain principle. Uh, and in another, it makes sense to apply a different principle, right? How do I discern, right? Having wisdom to uh, apply it in one way in this context and apply it in another way in this context. The last one I, I'm going to talk about, and certainly there's more than these, but the last one I'm going to talk about is someone who can discern good from evil, right? Someone who can identify evil, even when evil is cloaked and disguised as a form of good, right? Because this is a problem that we have in our, in our society, is evil is presented as good. Someone who can look at that and immediately identify that this is not good, this is presented as good, but it is false. It is actually against God's commandments, right? It is wrong. It is unchristian, right? And being able to discern that from what is truly good, something that is coming from God, something that we should exalt and, and, and practice, okay? So those are just some uh, characteristics of spiritual maturity. So what does... Uh, how, how do we reach, so how, how do we reach maturity? That was the, the last part of this question. How do we become spiritually mature? Okay, so I, I broke it down into three, the three um, like points. The first one is learning, okay? In order to become spiritually mature or really mature in any way, um, there's some learning involved, right? We have to know what maturity looks like. Like I have to understand what my goal is, right? I have to I have to see the goal, understand the goal. Um, saying, okay, in the Bible describes spiritual maturity as this, like some of the examples I gave, for example, to learn that these this is the goal, right? Reading and studying, okay? Seeking guidance from people, asking questions, observing people, right? Seeing examples of people, whether it be figures from the Bible or people in real life that are spiritually mature. Right, learning from them. What does that look like? Seeing an example of someone who is spiritually mature, and then using them as a model in order for me to attain. Okay, that's I think the first step toward spiritual maturity is to understand what spiritual maturity is. Okay, the second is self-examination. Okay, looking now in myself and asking, am I mature? Am I mature as I should be? 
how close am I to the standard of maturity? In what areas do I excel? And in what areas do I, does it, do I need work, right? Introspection, right? Looking in myself, godly counsel, confession, you know, looking inside <clears throat> and, and, and not being afraid to find whatever it is that I find, not being afraid to, to admit who I, who I am, right? We can't reach spiritual maturity except from the starting point, and the starting point is where I am today. So if I'm not willing to acknowledge where I am, then I'm not going to be willing to do the next step, which is actually to work on improving, right? You, when, when we know the goal, you know, and I know where I am, we identify there's a gap between where we are and where we want to be. So now we begin working to close that gap, okay? And, and that's where, you know, we, we went back to the spiritual practices, okay, is being in the presence of God, allowing the Spirit of God to work in me. Um, and of course, in conjunction with the other things like reading and, you know, confessing, filling my mind with God all the time, meditating on God, meditating on the love of God, all these things, like reminding myself of God's presence all the time, right? And, and practicing, praying, attending the liturgies, partaking of the sacraments, all these things are helping us to grow in maturity where the spirit of God works in me to close that gap between where I am and where I should be to become more Christ-like. So it's important that we have these three aspects, learning what maturity looks like, examining myself, and then practicing working spiritual practices in order for me to grow um, closer and closer to maturity. <clears throat> what happens to the papers that we send to the altar after the liturgy is over? Okay, so these are the papers that um, people will write down prayers or prayer requests uh, on the paper and then hand them to either a deacon or to the priest uh, during the liturgy to put on the altar and to pray uh, for those things. Um, so at the end of the liturgy, typically, um, and I think I might have mentioned this before, uh, we, uh, we rip up the paper so it's not like of the same form as this is the, the prayer itself. Uh, we, 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 we rip it up and we throw just discard it, like we just throw it away. Um, and then if someone, of course, wants to uh, send another prayer, like the following liturgy, or sometimes people will say, please leave this, you know, on the altar for a couple liturgies, which we can do. Um, but most of the time, it's just, it's ripped up and discarded. What does covetousness mean? So the definition of, to, of coveting, it means to yearn to possess something, to yearn to possess something. And this is mentioned in the 10th commandment, okay, which is, we, we find that in Exodus 20, verse 17, where God says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Okay, this is the 10th commandment. So coveting is a desire to possess, okay? Especially when it is to possess something that belongs to someone else, okay? Like envy. An interesting thing about this commandment, about coveting, okay? So we know that there's 10 commandments. The first four commandments are speaking about our relationship with God, right? 
about the way that we see God, the way that we worship God, the way that we love God, about keeping the Sabbath holy, okay? Those are the first four commandments. The last six commandments are all dealing with our relationship to others, okay? Like the last six, honor your father and mother, okay? Our relationship with our parents. Do not murder, okay? Do not harm others. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. And then finally, do not covet, okay? So these six are all related to my relationship with others. But there's something unique about this last commandment, the 10th, which is speaking about not coveting, okay? And that is that all the other five are all actions, right? Are all actions, like honoring my father and mother. This is an action. This is the way that I treat them. Do not murder. This is an action. Do not commit adultery. Action. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. These are all either choose to do or I choose not to do, okay? Um, but coveting is not an external action as much as it is an internal desire, right? It's a yearning to possess something. So it's something that God is saying to us, even this internal desire, right, of wanting to, to possess something that belongs to someone else is wrong, okay? Because again, like this, this illustrates how harmful it is, right? Um, even allowing these feelings of covetousness to creep into our mind that make us lose our peace, they make us um, always desiring for more, okay? Causing envy and jealousy can even make us feel angry toward others who have things that we want to have uh, or even want to take it from them or even want them to feel like, you know, I'm miserable because I don't have such a thing. I want you also to be miserable. I wish that you would lose the thing that is making you happy because I don't have it and I'm bitter about it. In the New Testament, Christ took... Uh, these commandments that were given in the Old Testament, and he spoke about them in a more spiritual way, okay? And in the Sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5, uh, he's speaking about these commandments. And so he says this, You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in, the, in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, right? So so Christ takes this command about do not murder, okay? And he said, what? Well, it's not just about the physical act of murder, okay? It's the hatred, the anger inside of you, right? That can lead to murder, that this itself is a sin. Because God is not just regulating the outward actions of people. He is telling us that, the internal, uh, like the, the root of all of those external things is actually something internal. It's the feeling of hatred, right? That I need to be careful about, that I need to, to, to stop, that I need to avoid, that I need to, to fight against, right? Not just the action, you know? He's not saying feel hatred all you want, just don't act on it. No, he's saying don't even feel hatred at all, okay? St. Paul, he speaks about contentment. Okay, in 1 Timothy 6, he says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. So St. Paul is saying that our, our contentment, okay, should just be based on the absolute minimum requirements, okay? Food and clothing, 
like the minimum things that we need in order to live, this is what we should be content with. And if we really think about it, and even though this is true, of course, maybe in our day, um, it's difficult for us to think this way. Like how many of us, if you really didn't have anything but food and clothing, he doesn't even say house. He <laughs> doesn't even say like the stuff that we would consider to be um, some of the most essential and, 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 and vital, right? Is not here, you know, no cell phone, no computer, um, you know, like, like so, so many things that uh, we consider to be so essential in our life. Here he's saying just all you need is food and clothing because with these you will live. You have food and clothing, you will live. You will not have luxury. You will not have anything beyond that, but you will live, right? And that with these you shall be content, right? The spirit that we are content with everything that God gives, right? And if we have this type of contentment, then we will not covet, right? Because we will identify that the things that we desire are not going to bring us the joy that we expect them to. And I think this is the bottom line here. The reason that we covet something is because we imagine that those things that we want will bring us happiness. And it's not just coveting, it's, it's also materialism, right? So like, even if it's not me necessarily coveting something that belongs to another, but just having a desire to possess something like to buy something, let's say something maybe expensive uh, that I want to buy and I can't afford it. And I keep thinking to myself that if I'm able to obtain this, then I'm going to be so happy, right? And all of us have experienced maybe something that something that we really have been looking forward to for a long time, and then we finally get it and we're happy for a little bit. And then after a while, we just treat it just as commonly as anything else. It's not really such a big fascination anymore because as human beings, it's so easy for us to just get used to something that we have and it's just not as valuable to us as we originally thought it would be. And it certainly doesn't bring the kind of happiness that we imagine it to have brought, okay? And this is the principle here about contentment, is to realize that nothing in the world is going to bring happiness more than God. God is the only thing that can bring consistent joy in our life, right? That is, you know, he is the fountain of living waters, that there is no end to him. There's no end to the joy that he brings. Whereas all these other things are just momentary, temporary. We feel good about it for a little while and then it fades away. Or maybe we want to obtain something just because other people have it and it's more of a competition, you know. So godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world. We were born with nothing and we will leave with nothing. Okay, so let's just be content with what we need to live. This is what St. Paul is saying. And this goes directly to this commandment about coveting. We don't covet because we don't need any of these things. God has provided for us all that we need, and there is nothing else that I lack, and so I should not be looking to other people and what they have in order to be happy. Number six. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11, St. Paul urges the people to lead a quiet life by saying that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands as we commanded you. What does quiet life mean? So I'll, I'm going to read from verse 9 so we can get some context as to what he's speaking about. So he says in verse 9, um, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need 
that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands as we commanded you. Okay? So here when St. Paul, Paul is speaking to the Thessalonians, he's speaking about the need to demonstrate and show brotherly love. Okay? And he is praising them because they are doing a good job of doing that. Here when he says what? Indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. So the Thessalonians are fulfilling this commandment by showing this brotherly love. Okay? Um, so then he goes on and he is explaining one of the ways in which we demonstrate this brotherly love to others is by not intruding into their affairs and to mind your own business is what he's saying. Mind your own business. So what does that mean? Um, so there's a verse in Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 25, 17. It says, seldom set foot in your neighbor's house, lest he become weary of you and hate you. Okay? Lest he become weary of you and hate you. This is the idea that when we impose ourselves on other people, or we are seeking the assistance of other people unnecessarily when we do not actually need or we have not done our own part to provide for ourselves and then instead expect other people to serve us when we have not served ourselves or done our own part, then this becomes a burden on other people, right? This is not considered brotherly love. This is considered imposing ourselves on people, right? That, um, that when we have not done all that we can to serve ourselves, okay? Um, St. Paul, for instance, when he's speaking to Timothy, he condemns people who are idle and not working. It says in 1 Timothy 5, uh, 13. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Here he's describing these widows who, um, they were widows, right? And so St. Paul is saying, don't treat all the widows the same, right? Because the church was to serve the widows. There were widows who could not help themselves, who could not work, who could not provide for themselves. And for those people, the church was to provide for them, provide for their needs, because they really had a need. But there is these other group of younger widows, okay, who had the ability to work, had the ability to serve themselves, had the ability to provide what they, what they own needed. But instead, they lived an idle life. They wandered from house to house. They gossiped, right? saying things that they should not say, and they did not serve anyone, they did not help anyone, they did not provide for themselves, and instead they are seeking support from the church, which St. Paul is saying the church should not give because they are not doing what they should do, okay? So this is the idea of um, someone who is minding their own business, someone who is, 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 is living, um, you know, in a way such as not to intrude on others, not to place undue burden on others, not to expect that others are going to serve them when they have the capacity to serve themselves, right? So what are some ways that we should not be placing undue burden? Number one, work with your own hands to provide for yourself, right? So if I have the ability to provide for myself, I am not going to go and ask financial assistance from others as long as I'm able to support myself. You know, who, who is it that 
would receive financial assistance from the church, it's people that cannot support themselves. The church is not going to give money to people who um, have the ability to work and choose not to work, for instance, right? Um, only ask for help when it is actually needed, okay? Um, don't spend your days idle not doing anything. So if I have the time, right, and I have the ability and I have the health to do something, then I should, I should do something. I should, I should serve myself and I should even serve others, right? Instead of saying idle, not doing anything. Um, do not gossip and speak about others, but mind your own affairs, right? St. Paul also spoke about this when he, and, and when he said what? Aspire to lead a quiet life to mind your own business, right? A quiet life is a life where I am not getting involved in the business of others, gossiping about others, um, and, and, and kind of inject, injecting myself into the life of others or expecting that others are going to serve me without, without me actually being in need, okay? Do not burden your neighbor by intruding in their life or their home uninvited, you know? Some people might feel always that they need others to provide for them all the time when, when they have the ability to provide for themselves and maybe they are not welcome, right, in certain places, um, and yet they still keep kind of, um, imposing themselves. Um, so this is uh, what St. Paul is referring to when he says to lead a quiet life. Um, kind of doesn't, doesn't mean that you don't interact with others. It doesn't mean that you don't socialize. It means that you don't burden others, and it means that you don't intrude into the life of others. Okay. How can I hate a sin that I enjoy? So in Romans 12, verse 9, it says, Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Also in Proverbs 8.13, it says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So what does it mean to hate evil? What does it mean to hate sin? To hate sin means that we agree with God that it is evil. So, so let's say there's a certain... Uh, activity, okay, um, that is sinful. So for me to hate it, it means that I agree with God that this is a sin. It doesn't mean that this is no longer a source of temptation for me. Like, let's say there's something that I'm tempted by, okay, that I'm tempted to do. But I know that it's wrong, and I agree that it's wrong, and I agree with God that this is wrong and sinful and evil. But that doesn't change the fact that I'm attracted to it, right? Because, because of my flesh, because of, because of the corruption that is in my flesh, my flesh is drawn to things that are evil. My flesh is drawn to things that are sinful because my flesh desires them, right? But that doesn't mean that I don't hate it. It means that because the, the, hating the sin is an acknowledgement that this, that that is a sin. Hating the sin means I agree that with God that this is wrong, but it doesn't necessarily mean that um, I'm not attracted to it. It doesn't necessarily mean that it is not a source of temptation for me, right? It just means that I'm choosing to abandon it, to fight against it, to resist it. That's what I'm wanting to do because I agree with God that it is a sin. Okay, so we can still hate sin while struggling with it. We can still hate sin while my flesh is attracted to it. We can even hate sin while we fall into it, right? We fall into it. 
this is actually why we confess. You know, like when I fall into a sin and then I'm upset because I fell into the sin and I repent and I confess. The fact that I'm committing a sin, does that mean that I love the sin? No, I can hate the sin and I hate the fact that I fell into it, right? And I'm struggling and resisting it. But nonetheless, uh, because of my weakness, I fell into it, right? With time and with the grace of God working through the Holy Spirit in me, it is possible for me to be transformed so that the things that I used to love, the things that I used to practice, the things that I used to struggle with and tempt me, eventually become things that I naturally abhor, things that I naturally just don't even want to look at, touch, approach, think about, just in a more natural way, okay, so that we don't desire it at all. Yes, this can happen, that God willing, over time, I'm transformed so that the things that I used to struggle with, the things that used to attract me, now no longer attract me anymore. This might not happen all at once, but little by little, that these things just no longer have any, you know, like, 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 like they're so distasteful to me now, not desirable to me in any way. And so a part of hating sin is struggling against it, even if uh, I'm attracted to it. Also, uh, hating sin has to do with not idolizing uh, those who commit that sin. So, you know, let's say, okay, we acknowledge that cursing is sin. So let's say I am struggling with cursing, you know. Um, okay, I can try to resist it. I can try to stop it. I can try to repent of it. But it also means that I'm not going to try to spend my time with people or activities that are filled with cursing, right? Like, like, let's say the music that I listen to, is it filled with cursing? The movies that I watch, is it filled with cursing? The people that I idolize, the people that I look up to, are, are they cursing all the time? Well, I can't say that I hate the sin of cursing. Well, at the same time, I am voluntarily spending my time doing activities that involve cursing or that involve sexual sin or that involve gossip or that involve whatever activity that is a sin that I'm trying to resist, I also have to separate myself from people and things that are uh, promoting that sin through their own lifestyle to just the, 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 you know, the, the, the presence of that, of that sin in that, in that activity, right, that I'm doing. So part of hating sin is avoiding the sin as much as I'm able, not just when I commit the sin myself, but avoiding the sin in, in the, the, the other activities, other things that I choose to do in my life. Okay. I think this is a good stopping point for today. Um, thank you, everybody, for uh, tuning in to the Q&A. And uh, let's just conclude in a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Thank you, O Lord, for this day. Thank you for being with us at all times. Teach us, O Lord, your ways, and help us, O Lord, to be always rejuvenated and revived and transformed in this world so that through our spiritual practices, through our prayers, through our fasting, through, O oh Lord, the work of your Holy Spirit in us, we transform and change and become more Christ-like at all times. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory.